Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 19? Of course, by this time, Jesus has gone through two trials, one religious, one civil. And the Jews had forced Pilate, really, to pronounce him guilty and then worthy of crucifixion. And so, verse 17, John 19, verse 17 And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him. That was about nine o'clock in the morning. And from that point, six hours passes, and we're now at around three in the afternoon, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus said, It is finished. It begs the question, what was finished? Was he saying he had finished tasting the sour wine? Or maybe, maybe this was the cry of a man lamenting that his life was over, cut down in its prime before he had realized all of his dreams. You know, it's over. It's finished. My life is done. My ministry is over. What a bitter way for my life to end. Now, skeptics believe that, critics of the Bible. They believe that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be. And they believe that he got a little too big for himself and began to draw attention from the authorities, negative attention, which finally got him crucified. And so they can imagine Jesus saying from the cross, what a bitter way for my life to end. I never thought it would end like this. It's over. It's finished. Of course, to think that is utter nonsense. Okay. For those of us who know Jesus, we, un- we understand that the statement he spoke from the cross when he said, it is finished, was not a cry of bitter disappointment and defeat. It was a shout of victory. He was saying, I have completed the work my father gave me to do. It is finished. In fact, the Greek word for it is finished is tetelestai. And in Jesus' day, a servant would use it when reporting to his master. He would come to his master and say, I have completed the work or the assignment you gave me to do. Now, Jesus used it that exact way in John 17, verse 4 when he was praying to his father and said, Father, I have finished the work you've given me to do. But guys, to fully understand the power of what Jesus Christ was saying when he said from the cross, it is finished, we really need to read Paul the Apostle's comments out of Colossians chapter 2. Why don't you turn there? In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, we read, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What is Paul referring to when he talks about the handwriting of requirements that was against us? Well, it's a term that means the bill the record of sins, the debt we owed God. The NASB translates it this way, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. The NLT, 
translates it, the record that contained the charges against us. Look, the Bible says that every sin a person commits against God's law, and just think of the Ten Commandments, that was a small part of God's law, but think of that. Every sin a person commits against God's law is a debt that he or she owes God. Listen, a debt that must be paid. Like when a criminal finishes his time in prison and we say he has paid his debt to society. And the same goes for the violations against God's laws, who, by the way, keeps meticulous records of every word we ever said, every thought we ever thought, every action we ever did that violated what he has said in his word and his law. Every sin, the Bible says, is really a crime against a holy God and is written in our ledger, God's books. God keeps very meticulous books. Each one of us has a ledger containing all these handwritings of ordinances against us, all the sins we had ever committed, again, in word, thought, and deed. And guys, they must be paid for. They must be paid for. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14 says, For God will bring every work into judgment, every work, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, Jesus came to earth to pay our debt. Turn to Isaiah 53. I know most of you have it memorized, but well, for those that don't, we'll have you all turn there. Very familiar passage. We should not have a Good Friday service without visiting this passage at least once. Jesus came to the earth to pay our debt. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace, our peace with God, was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Listen. And the Lord laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, we read, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 14, that Jesus took our sins out of the way, having nailed it or nailed them to his cross, he was really referring to a practice back then by which guilty criminals paid their debt to society. This was very common in Paul's day, so when he wrote this, they understood immediately what he was talking about. In those days, if you had committed a crime or crimes against the state and you were convicted, they would take those crimes and write it on a piece of parchment, and then they would nail it to your dungeon door. After you had finished paying for those crimes, they would take that piece of parchment and they would write to die across the bottom, which could be translated paid in full. They would roll up the scroll and give it to you, and that way you would always have proof that you had paid your debt to society. And that's what Paul is talking about here, that we owed a debt we couldn't pay. He paid a debt he didn't know. We were supposed to spend eternity in the dungeon of hell. But Jesus Christ took our penalties, all the handwritings of ordinances, all the things that were in God's ledger, of all the sins we ever would commit, Jesus nailed them to his cross. All the sins we had ever committed and would ever commit, all the crimes against God's holy law, everything that would ever be written in our ledger, he nailed it to his cross. And Jesus then 
just before he died from the cross, said, It is finished to tell us die, paid in full. Look, if a person refuses to receive what Jesus Christ did for them on Calvary's cross, his death was paid for all their sins, then you know what? Someday they will stand before God themselves and be sentenced to pay for their own crimes in hell. Let me try to give you an illustration that hopefully will put this in perspective. Our national debt has just crossed $18 trillion. $18 trillion. Uh, most of us can't even fathom how much money that is. To pay off a debt of $18 trillion, assuming there's no more interest added to it, just $18 trillion, would require roughly payments of $50,000 a day for 100 years. $50,000 a day for 100 years. For the average worker who makes $50,000 a year, if they would spend, put every penny they made in the whole year towards the debt, it would take them, listen, 36,500 years to pay off that debt. Guys, listen to me. That amount, as great as it is, is nothing compared to the debt that sinners owe God. Because the Bible says that those who refuse to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, whose blood alone can pay their debt, listen, they are going to spend eternity in hell paying for their crimes against God. Now, when you tell people this, who are not believers, of course, they are incredulous. And they will say something like, why does a person have to spend eternity in hell for the sins they committed during their lifetime? How is that fair? That the sins committed over the course of 70 or 80 years bring with them an eternal sentence. Why can't they just punish for 70 or 80 years? Well, that's a good question. All right, very good question. Let me try to answer it the best I know how. If a man broke into a house one night and brutally attacked, raped, and beat a young single woman over the next four hours, if convicted, should he get four hours in prison? Should that be his punishment since that was the duration of the crime? Of course not. A crime like that could possibly, and I think should probably, bring with it, a, with it a life sentence in prison because, listen, we don't punish people based on the length of their crime. We punish them based on the heinousness and severity of their crime. God is infinitely holy and just. Therefore, any crime, any sin against him, listen, is infinitely heinous and therefore carries with it an infinite penalty, eternity in hell. Now, you don't have to like it. You don't even have to agree with it, but you better not ignore it. You'd be wise to accept it and do something about it right now while there's still time. And by that I mean repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Here's the problem with most people today, how they think. They just don't understand the holiness of God, nor the severity of their situation as a violator of his laws. Think again of the Ten Commandments. Here's how most people think. I've heard this. I've heard it many times. I know I'm not perfect. <laughs> well, thank you for acknowledging that. I know I'm not perfect, but I believe I'm good enough to get into heaven because I believe I've done more good things in the course of my life than bad things. And so because of it, I believe my good deeds will outweigh and therefore cancel out the bad things I have done, and God will then let me into heaven. Uh, that's a very common way of thinking today. 
Very, I've heard it many times. Many people look at the problem of sin just like that. Let's examine that reasoning for a moment. First of all, that logic wouldn't even work in a human court of law with a flawed human judge presiding. I've used this illustration before, but indulge me. You've been all, all your life a pretty law-abiding citizen. I mean, you've really been a good person. You have not violated any laws. You've been a good citizen. But your life has become boring, okay? And one day you decide, you know what? I'm going to do something crazy. I'm just tired of playing it safe. I'm going to do something wild, crazy. So in a moment of craziness, you steal a car, go for a joyride. Of course, the police catch you. You're brought before the judge, and here's your line of defense. See if this works. Well, Your Honor, I know I broke the law. But that was the only time I ever broke the law. Surely all the good things I've done, surely all the years of my keeping the law will cancel out this one violation. What's the judge going to say? Are you serious? You don't get any points for keeping the law, but if you break the law, you have to pay the consequences, the penalty. Again, that defense wouldn't work in a human court with a human judge. <laughs> How much less would it work in the supreme court of the universe with the righteous judge of all the earth presiding? Genesis 18 calls him that, right? And yet, guys, that's the very defense that many are planning to use when they stand before God someday. Again, I know I'm not perfect, but I believe I'm a good person. And I believe that when I stand before God and I tell him all the good things I've done, certainly he'll be impressed and say, you know what, you were a good person. Come on in, you know. My good deeds are going to outweigh the bad. I believe he'll be fair and let me into heaven. Well, you know what, I like what J. Vernon McGee says along these lines. Old Baptist preacher, love him. He said, yes, my friend, you will be able to get a fair trial there. Your life is on tape. And Jesus Christ, the judge, happens to have the tape. I think he will have it on a television screen. We would think of a jumbotron. So that you can watch it too. You know, this was your life. Do you think your life can stand the test? Are you willing to stand before God and have him play the tape of your entire life? I do not know about you, but I couldn't make it. Thank God for his grace. And then he quotes Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. So that's first of all. That good deeds outweighing the bad deeds, that doesn't fly in a human court. That's not going to fly in God's court. But besides that, you need to understand something. A lot of people don't realize this. They think, I'm going to stand before God someday and plead my case. Guys, guess what? The case is already over. The case is already over. The verdict was pronounced in the Garden of Eden. Adam and therefore all of his descendants are guilty. Paul said, in Adam, all what? All die. Because all bear Adam's guilt. We're all born with original sin. And then every day, we add to that sin and to the guilt by continuing to break God's commandments. And that the great white throne judgment, which, as I said earlier, was, is the supreme court of the entire universe, these folks think they're going to plead their case. They're going to have their day in court. I'm going to present my case. I believe God will see it my way and let me into heaven. Well, guys, they won't have an opportunity to plead their case. The case has already been decided. The verdict has already been given. Guilty. Guilty. Jesus came not to save good people. He came to pardon those who were already condemned, already pronounced guilty by God. Turn to John 3. In John chapter 3, verse 17, we read, Jesus speaking now, 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. Listen, but he who does not believe is what? Condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who have not received Christ, they don't get their day in court. They don't get to plead their case. They're already guilty, already condemned. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, Paul said. Just what is sin? Just what is sin? Well, the word in the Greek literally means to miss the mark. It was really an archery term for hitting the bullseye on the target. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned. Therefore, what Paul is saying, all have missed the mark. Of course, the next question is, what does the mark or the bullseye represent? Well, Paul tells us, represents the glory of God. In verse 23 of Romans 3, once again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what is the glory of God? You ready? It's perfection. Just as God is perfect. Yes, but perfection with regard to what? The perfection that God is referring to is to perfectly keep his righteous standard. Or in other words, to perfectly keep the law of God. Now, we've talked about this before. In the Old Testament, God's law contains 613 commandments. But you know what? That's too many to deal with tonight. Okay. Some of you might be thinking, you could try, though. I know that. Um, but listen. God's law in the Old Testament consisted of 613 commandments. To break any one of them was to miss the mark and therefore be guilty of sin. Well, let's not deal with all 613. Let's just limit ourselves to the 10 we're most familiar with. The 10 commandments, right? And again, it's commandments, not suggestions, as many people think God said today. These commandments, listen to me, 10 commandments. These commandments are like the wooden boards that make up the hull of a boat, it doesn't matter if most of them are there. If only one is missing or broke, that boat is going under. The same is true for the person who chooses to, to get into heaven by living a moral life and keeping God's commandments. It doesn't matter if they keep most of them. If any commandment is broken, even once, that person is sunk or condemned. James made this very clear in uh, James chapter 2, verse 10, when he said, look, even if you were to keep the entire law of God perfectly but violated one law, you'd be condemned. Because God doesn't judge people based on how many laws they keep or how many they break. If you keep them all, James says, but violate one, break one law, you're a lawbreaker. See, that's how God, see, people don't realize that. They think, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I think I'm good enough. Well, the point is that if you're not perfect, you're not good enough. Because if you break one law, God doesn't say, oh, you're a one lawbreaker, you're getting in. He says, you're just a lawbreaker, just a lawbreaker. And that's why Paul calls the law cursed, because as one who tried to live under the law to be righteous for many years, he understood that uh, it makes salvation dependent upon a person keeping all of it without fail, all God's laws. In other words, the law demands moral perfection from a person to gain access into heaven. When I ask people, you know, we've been out, out in the streets there witnessing, and we ask people, I, I've done this many times, if you were to die tonight, would God let you into heaven? And almost always they say, yes, I believe God would let me in. And I ask, well, why do you feel that way? Based on what? 
And again, they come up with this, you know, look, I know I'm not perfect, but I believe I'm good enough. See, I, I, I know that, you know, I'm not perfect morally speaking, but I still think I'm good enough to get into heaven. Well, again, listen to what God's word is saying. If you're not morally perfect, you're not good enough to get into heaven. Not good enough to get into heaven. It's all or nothing. There is no good enough or I'm better than most. It's either, listen, sinless perfection or eternal rejection in hell. Again, Romans 3. Why don't you turn there? Again, I want to read Romans 3, verse 23, where Paul says, For all have sinned. All have missed the mark. Now, some of us, it's true, have missed the mark a lot farther than others. That all have missed the mark, right? Can I use my Grand Canyon illustration one more time? I know you've heard this many times, but I see some new faces, so bear with me. A few years ago, we were visiting my son in Phoenix, and um, they wanted to go to the Grand Canyon. Now, they had been there once before. I had never been there. And so they said, Dad, let's go to the Grand Canyon. I said, well, how far is it? Four hours. Four hours. This better be a pretty spectacular hole in the ground. I'm spending four hours driving to it. Well, you know, it was. We got there. It was pretty spectacular. And as you're looking out over the Grand Canyon, from what I understand, some places, it's 26 miles from one side to the other. Now, what if God said, look, to get to heaven, you've got to jump across the Grand Canyon, 26 miles? Well, certainly, you know, all right, Lord, here I go. You know, I'm going to take my best shot, run my hardest, probably trip right at the edge and fall right down. Some guys in better shape might make it, you know, 10, 15 feet out before, zip, they go down. Go get yourself an Olympic, you know, runner or Olympic a long jumper. They're going to take off and they're going to go maybe 30 feet out, but they're going to go straight down it. Some better than others, some got out a little farther than others, but listen, all fell far short of the other side of the Grand Canyon. Same is true with heaven. There are some people who live a lot more moral life than others. They get a little closer to heaven, but guys, they fall far short themselves. So Paul says, all have sinned, all have missed the mark, and fall short of the glory of God, which is sinless perfection. In Romans 6.23, and the wages of sin is what? Death. He's talking about eternal death, hell. So somebody would say, what you're saying is to get into heaven, you have to live a perfect life. That's a sinless life. That's impossible. Nobody could do that. Well, that's not true. One man did. His name is Jesus. And if we put our faith in him, he will put his righteousness to our account. And he will write to Telestai across our ledger, paid in full with his own blood. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Because I love what Paul says here. He's talking about the same thing, just different words. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, In him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Redemption means to buy somebody out of slavery by paying a price. We were the slaves of sin and death. Jesus Christ redeemed us. As Peter said, we weren't redeemed with things like gold and silver and precious stones. We were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. See, that's what we needed to get into heaven. 
Forgiveness of sins, the payment of our debt. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, of sins according to the riches of his grace. Grace means a free gift. A free gift. The Greek word translated forgiveness in Ephesians 1 7 means literally to send away. Remember what the psalmist said? He has sent our sins as far as the east is from the west. That means they're completely gone. It really speaks of canceling a debt or granting a pardon. Guys, a pardon that must be accepted if it's going to benefit a guilty man or woman, say, those who have violated God's laws. Jesus Christ is offering the world a pardon, but you have to receive it if it's going to benefit you. I told you this story before, but back in 1830, there was a man named George Wilson who was convicted of robbing the United States mail. And so he was captured and tried, and he was sentenced to be hanged. But for some reason, I really haven't dug into the story that deeply, for some reason, President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon for Wilson. But guess what? He refused to take it. This threw the legal system into chaos. They had never before this had anyone refuse a pardon. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, should we force it on the guy? Should we make him take the pardon? All the way to the Supreme Court... It went to Chief Justice Marshall, who concluded that Wilson would have to be executed. Marshall said this, and I quote, A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. Sad, because he could have been spared if he had received the pardon. John the Apostle said of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that he himself is the sacrifice, Jesus Christ, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And listen, he goes on to say, not only our sins, those who have re received the pardon, but also for the sins of the whole world. I don't know if people realize that. When Jesus hung on that cross and said, it is finished, he was saying the work of redemption had been completed. Sin had been paid for. And at that moment, God issued a pardon to every man, woman, and teenager that would ever live in this fallen world, a pardon to be completely forgiven and go to heaven. This pardon and the gift of eternal life that went along with it was free for the asking. It was free for the asking. Because, listen to me, it is a gift to be received, not a reward to be earned. Paul said that in Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, I love that, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Turn back to John 3, and let's read again, starting from verse 16 this time, John's Gospel, chapter 3. And let's start with a verse you should all have memorized, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I felt that was important enough to read twice tonight, because it's telling us that man is a guilty and condemned sinner. When I say man, I mean mankind. I mean, the case is over. And yet, in his mercy, God, through his son, Jesus Christ, is offering the human race a full pardon. A full pardon. 
But remember, guys, a pardon is worthless unless it is accepted. The thing I want to encourage everyone in this room today is receive God's pardon today, right now. Receive his pardon. Let me close with this. The greatest problem facing the human race isn't Islamic fundamentalism. It isn't global warming. It isn't world hunger or disease or if we're talking about America, the economy. The greatest problem facing the human race is and always has been the problem of sin. It is and always has been the problem of sin. And guys, that's what Jesus came the first time to do. He came to save us from our sins. There are those who would like him to have come to save the planet. Guess what? He will save the planet when he comes the second time. He'll save it by destroying the first one and recreating it. But he came the first time to do the most important work, to save us from our sins, to pay our debt. And yet because we live in the physical universe, we tend to focus on the physical more than the spiritual. And so we see a lot of people coming to church, coming to God, wanting him to fix their marriages, heal their bodies, supply their needs. And that's not wrong, okay? It's not wrong if you understand that's not the real focus. That's not really what God wants to deal with. I mean, those practical issues, they're important to God because they're important to us. That's where we live. And God wants to heal marriages. He wants to heal bodies. Too many times, though, people come to church, come to God, who are totally focusing on the temporal and neglecting the eternal. That's how they see God. God, you're there to help me with all my physical problems. But listen to me. God is far more concerned with our eternal good than he is our temporal comfort. And, in fact, will allow physical problems and even pain in our lives to break us of ourselves, to break our grip on the temporal, to get our eyes pointed upwards on the eternal to bring us to or to bring us back to Jesus. If you've walked away from God and things have been rough, praise God. You don't want to be in a situation where you've walked away from God and are in sin and your life is being blessed because you know what? You're no child of God. Because God only disciplines those who belong to him. And he loves you too much to let you squander your life in time when he is wanting to give you the best eternity possible. And so he will often inflict temporary pain on the earth to bring us to him. But guys, let me say something. What seems as an act of cruelty is really the ultimate act of love. What would you rather do? Have some temporary pain on earth or would you rather have eternal pain in hell? If God can make it so rough on you, if God can bring enough pain into your life, oh, that sounds terrible. No, because God's always working for your eternal good. And if it means sacrificing temporal comfort, bringing some temporal pain because he wants to get your attention, bring it to your knees, that you would confess your sins and come to him, he'll do that. Because God's all about working for our eternal good. Listen, guys, and we're done. Understand that Jesus right now if you don't know him, or if you've strayed away from him, Jesus right now is holding out his hands to you. The hands that were scarred with the nail prints. He's holding out his hands to you right now. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you're at right now. I don't care how bad things have gotten. 
He is holding out those nail-scarred hands, and he is saying to you, come to me. It's finished. I did all the work. I paid the debt. Come to me so that I can give you the gift of eternal life. That's what he's saying. It's finished. You don't have to add anything to what I've done. You can't. I'm just offering you a gift. I did the work. I said it's finished. Paid in full. But you need to come to me. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, guess what? There's a pardon waiting for you. But you can reject that pardon. Or you can think, well, I don't really need it. I'm good enough. Do you really want to go there? Do you really want to think that way, even though we've covered this, I think, in detail tonight? Do you really want to stand before God and hear, me? Who cares about me? Do you want to stand before Jesus Christ someday and hear him say, I never knew you? Oh, but Lord, I went to church. I was involved in ministry. I even did miracles in your name, Matthew 7, right? What's he going to say to these folks? I never knew you. Depart from me. Into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not made for man. It was made for the devil and his angels. But if people want to reject Jesus Christ, they want to go on living in rebellion, then they will follow the devil to the place where he is going to spend eternity. And it's not God's fault. How could a God of love send people to hell? He doesn't. He's done everything he can to save you from hell. But it's your choice. Well, I just believe a God of love would never send anybody to hell. That's a delusion. You need to get over that. Okay? The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son. Now, that's what God did. That was God's part. What's our part? That whoever should what? Believe. Would not have to perish in hell, but have everlasting life. I've said it before. Let me say it again. God's love is an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing. But God's love will not save you. God's love cannot save you. God's love has never saved, never saved anybody. All that God's love can do, which it did, is to provide a way by which you might be saved. He's holding out his hand. He's saying, come to me. The work has been done. My son paid the price. Now you come to me. And people keep slapping the hand of God away. And it's sad. They're rejecting the pardon Jesus Christ died to give to them. And if they continue to reject it, they will go to hell, and it's not God's fault. So if there's anyone here in this room tonight who has not understood this, and now maybe the light has come on a little bit, and you realize you have not received Christ, and you're not good enough to get to heaven because you're not perfect. And tonight you want to receive Christ and receive that pardon that has your name on it after service you come up here so we can pray with you, give you a Bible, try to answer any questions you may have. May God put everybody in everyone's heart tonight, whether or not you've really accepted Christ or not. And if not, come on up so we can pray with you. We can fix this tonight. You can receive God's pardon tonight, and he will mark across your ledger, written in the blood of Christ, paid in full. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We are unworthy sinners. We don't deserve the least of your mercies or blessings. We certainly don't deserve heaven. And yet, Lord, you offer it to us as a free gift. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that no one took your life from you by force. You gave it freely for the sheep. And we just love you, Lord, and thank you that by your stripes we are healed.
because you were pierced, we don't have to suffer in hell forever. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And pray, Lord, that as you now have died for us, give us grace to live for you in this dark world because we need to be light so others might come to know you as well. We just praise you, Lord, and thank you for your indescribable love. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.